Thank you, Zachary, and good morning. Christ Central, it's good to be with you all. Uh, this morning we're continuing in our sermon series in First Peter, our, a, a brief flyover, if you will, that we're doing of a book that uh, we could spend a lot more time in, and I'm sure we will at some point, but uh, we're going to be in this book for two more weeks, and then we'll transition into Advent. Uh, but this morning we're going to be in the second part of chapter 2, um, and then a little bit into chapter 3. But we're going to read the end of chapter 2 here as we begin. I invite you now, if you're able to stand, for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respects, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judged justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would allow me, your servant, to get out of the way so that you might speak to the heart and that as we encounter you, the living God, that we would be transformed. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Dating myself here a little bit, but, a bit, but uh, back in 2002, Matt Damon starred in a film called The Born Identity. I guess it was a hit because they kept unnecessarily making sequel after sequel after sequel. But the first one was pretty good, primarily because of this creative and, and novel storyline. The story begins with a group of fishermen, and they pick up a man floating in the middle of the ocean. He's bullet-riddled, and he's suffering from amnesia. 
This man who we later discover is Jason Bourne has no idea who he is or where he's been. And yet in spite of knowing nothing about his identity, Jason possesses these strange sets of skills. He knows how to fight, and he knows how to kill, and he's pretty darn good at both. And throughout the movie, we observe Jason instinctively embracing these violent behaviors, and and yet he has no idea why he's so adept at doing these violent things. See, his behavior has been divorced from his identity. If I may be so bold, I think many of us, me included, are a lot like Jason Bourne. We live life in a certain way, we embrace certain skills and behaviors, and yet we struggle to know why we do the things that we do. Even those of us who perform very well, who are accomplished at much and extremely gifted, we still often, like Jason, are confused of the why of what we do. Behavior divorced from identity. Our text this morning offers a paradigm that instructs us on how to not be like Jason Bourne. A paradigm that is is present throughout the scriptures, but is seen pretty acutely here in 1 Peter. And that paradigm that Peter lays out for us is that identity leads to purpose, which leads to function. Say that again. Identity leads to purpose, which leads to function. Or maybe stated differently, who I am leads to why I am, which leads to what in the world am I supposed to be doing with my life? If you remember, Peter is speaking to a group of elect exiles. These are Christians who've been scattered throughout Asia Minor, and and there's persecution that is happening to them. And in the midst of this persecution, they have seemingly lost their way. And Peter knows that in order to get them back on track, he has to remind them of the answer to these three questions. Who are you? Why are you? And what are you supposed to be doing with your life? And don't miss this, church. Peter makes it plain here in chapter 2 that the order really matters. And that's important for us to see because in today's world, we're very accustomed to the reverse order. We try to figure out who we are based upon what we do. We cling to an identity that is rooted in our performance. A friend of mine from college shared how this played out in his own life. He was an incredibly gifted baseball player. He had a Division I scholarship in his hand, and then it happened. He got hurt his senior year, messed up his shoulder, baseball career over. He didn't just lose his scholarship, he lost his whole life. This man had no idea who he was or why he mattered apart from the game of baseball. His whole identity was rooted in what he could do with a little white ball. This is the root cause of a midlife crisis, isn't it? We get to a certain point in our lives and we look back over our career and what we've accomplished and we begin to wonder, have we done enough? Do we matter? Have we accomplished enough to have worth and value in this life? What Peter is saying is that's the exact opposite way that we should be looking at things. You can't determine who you are based upon what you do, but rather you must determine what you do based upon who you are. And so this morning, my charge is for us to hear what Peter says to these exiles about who they are 
and why they are and what they're supposed to be doing with their lives and see if there might be some truth here for exiles like you and me. I want to begin with the first question, who am I? As I already mentioned, the, the Christians that Peter is talking to have been through a lot. They've been uprooted from their homes and they've been forced to, to try and do a completely different life in a completely different place. They've lost a good bit of that connectivity that Pastor Evan talked about two weeks ago. They're likely now existing in small pockets and parts of the world where it's not very cool to be Christian. Sounds a little bit like Durham, right? And it's into that context that Peter speaks their identity. Who are they? Verse 11, he says they are the beloved. The beloved. Some translations here use the word friend, but that doesn't even come close to the weightiness of the original language. The Greek word that Peter uses comes from the root word agape, a word that's not found in classical Greek, but rather birthed in religion to signify a special kind of love, a uniquely unselfish and benevolent love, a love that exists from someone far greater towards someone far lesser. To be the beloved is to be the recipient of this kind of love. Which is why we know that although Peter has a love for these Christians, he's not talking about his own love towards them, but rather God's love towards them. He's riffing off of what he just said in verse 9. You are a chosen people, chosen by God, chosen to be recipients of this agape love. Can we sit right there for a moment, church? Jeff Schulte made this statement last weekend at the men's retreat, and I've heard him say it many times before, but it, it hits me every time. He said that our greatest need is to believe that we matter and belong apart from our performance. That humanity's greatest need is to believe that we matter and belong apart from our performance. And church, that is exactly what is communicated in this word, beloved. Because if God truly is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing, he knows everything that you've ever said or done or even thought, he knows the full breadth of your performance. He knows even the ugly stuff that you hope nobody ever finds out about. He knows about that. And yet knowing all of that, he still calls you beloved declaring that you matter to him and that you belong in relationship with him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are beloved by God? Does that define you? Or do you find yourself working backward with God, laboring to prove yourself to God by what you do in hopes that one day, maybe one day, someday, he will identify me as loved by him, beloved. I can't emphasize enough how important that question is. Your ability to answer the question, why I am and what am I supposed to be doing necessarily hinges upon your ability to know who you are, the beloved of God. There's more, though. Peter 
doesn't just identify us as beloved. He goes on to further clarify that we are beloved sojourners and exiles. Now, what does it mean to be a sojourner and an exile? Uh, down the street from me lives a group of uh, first-generation Mexican immigrants. These are not simply Latin American men and women. They are Mexican-American. They actually primarily came from a specific region in Mexico, a whole group of men and women and children moved together to the United States. And it's been a privilege to get to know these people. And a few times, Stacy and I have been invited to be a part of some of their big celebrations, birthday parties or, or various events. And, and when I've had the privilege to attend one of these events, it doesn't feel like I'm in Durham, North Carolina anymore. It's as if I've hopped a plane into Mexico. And, and there's so much in terms of how these men and women and children have assimilated into American culture. But the reality is, in many ways, Durham is not their home. They possess an identity that is separate from this place, an identity that profoundly defines who they are. And it's part of why these families live so close together and they do so much life together and they're holding on to, they're clinging to these parts of their identity. They don't want to lose that connection to home. Peter is calling us much in the same way to not lose sight of the fact that this world is not our forever home. God has placed us here and we are to make ourselves at home here, but, but we're holding tight to the reality that as the beloved, we have a new forever home, a new nationality, a new place that we are rooted in and anchored by. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, no longer is our citizenship here on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we can all admit that, that this aspect of our identity is a little bit harder than the beloved part. Sometimes I'm really fine being at home here in this place. This summer, while on sabbatical, my family got to spend some time in Hawaii. I want to tell you that the hype is legit. Uh, that place is magical. It is so awesome. Unparalleled beauty, perfect weather, delightful people. Nobody's in a hurry. It's lovely. And we did not want to leave. Uh, we were so comfortable and at peace there. To come back meant to come back to work, back to school, back to 100-degree weather. And, and the Price family was really happy and content to make that place that was not our home our new home. This is the reality that Peter is speaking into here. People of God, they've been scattered all over Asia Minor and they've found themselves in these new and exciting places, cities that do not worship God. But they're cities that certainly have a whole lot going for them. And, and Peter recognizes how easy it would be for these Christians to lose sight of their heavenly citizenship and to fully make this new place their home. And how easy is it for us to do the same here in Durham, North Carolina? What a wonderful city we live in. How easy is it for us to reside in this place as a resident and not as a sojourner? To live as though our lives are not in any way tethered to something greater, something that transcends this place. But Peter says that we are strangers here meaning that we should always feel some level of discomfort, an awareness that we are not home. 
In a moment, we're going to talk about what that looks like. But to live as aliens and strangers in this place, the first point of application is that I want us to know that we must embrace that like my neighbors do by gathering and celebrating together like we're doing right now. We must live out and live into our heavenly identity together. God God encourages us to do it every single week. We gather here so that we don't lose that connection with home and don't forget who we are. We're beloved strangers and exiles. Which leads us to our second question. Now that we know who we are, the next question that follows is, why am I? A question that centers not around identity, but purpose. What is our purpose according to Peter? Does anybody ever have this happen to you where you walk into a room and you forget why you're there? This happens to me all the time. Uh, My wife will ask me to go do something like unload the dishes or something along those lines and I'll get up off the couch and I'll walk into the kitchen and then I'll just be totally clueless. I have no idea why I'm here. And then normally I go in the pantry and get some food and I'll go sit back down and and she'll look at me funny like, what are you doing? (laughs) So I just forgot. I I, I don't know. And I'm standing in the kitchen and I know well who I am. I know I'm an involved and helpful husband and father, and yet I can't put my finger on why I am. Why am I in the kitchen? Peter's question is not why are you in the kitchen, but why are you here on this earth? Why are you here in Durham, North Carolina in 2022? And the answer, although maybe not as in your face as the who I am question, is present throughout this text. Look again at verse 12. Peter is just given a bit of the what, and then we're going to get back to that, but he hammers here the why. He says, you behave this way so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the purpose that that flows out of our belovedness? It's God's glory. The why for our being here, that which motivates us to behave a certain way, is more glory for God. This isn't something new. This is not something Peter came up with. It's the grand theme of all the scriptures. Psalm 86 says, All nations whom you have made shall come and kneel down and worship before you, Lord. They shall glorify your name. I will give thanks and praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forevermore. All of the Bible is this story that tells that that man's chief end, man's aim, the reason why we are here is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yet here in chapter 2, Peter is not referring to God's glory in a general sense, but rather he's, he's talking about a specific aspect of God's glory. What verse 12 said is, says that the glory that he's after is not the glory that, that is generally present through people worshiping him, but, but the glory that comes from those who do not see beginning to see. The glory that comes through people coming to faith in Christ. That's what Peter is after here. Now, I, I think I should make a qualifying statement. Peter is not saying that evangelism is the only way by which God is glorified. There's a multitude of ways in which God gets glory. But this section of Scripture right here is about the glorification of God that comes from the 
people outside the family of God becoming a beloved child of God. And the point that Peter is making here, this is the big part of the why I am, is that for lack of a better term, we are here for those who are not yet beloved. Those who have not yet been reconciled to God, who have not come into the family and therefore are not experiencing the riches of being in relationship with here. Peter is saying boldly, why are you here? You're here for them. Because our God deeply cares for those outside his family. He longs for them to glorify him on the day of visitation, meaning to worship him in the end when Jesus comes back and makes everything right once and for all. Now, I'm pretty confident here there's some people with us right now, either in person or online, who would self-identify in this way. You do not identify as a Christian, and therefore the idea of being the beloved of God, and particularly the God of the Bible, seems strange or foreign to you. And my hope is that what is being said here, although certainly awkward, is encouraging to you. Because it speaks to the fact that my God sees you and he cares deeply for you. So much so that he's instructed his children to be his catalyst for bringing you to him. Now that being said, I do want to acknowledge the rest of this sermon may sound a little strange to you. Because Peter is instructing Christians to live their life in such a way that encourages those who don't know Jesus to consider giving their life to Jesus. Which kind of feeds into the negative press that Christians often get. That we have an agenda. And what Peter is saying is that this bad press is actually quite fitting. Because as Christians you do have an agenda. That agenda is a big part of why you are here. As the beloved, your agenda is to live lives that point others to something beyond this world. To a God who created this world and longs to be in relationship with them. Verse 21, Paul states, excuse me, Peter states rather strongly, for to this you have been called. Called is the biblical word for purpose. Our calling is the why. Our calling is those who don't know him. Which brings us to our third and final question. Knowing who we are and why we are, then we must ask, how are we supposed to live? And the first thing that we need to recognize here is that Peter is presenting a recommendation and not a mandate. And it's so important that we see that. He's saying, live, he's not saying live this way or else, but rather he is saying in light of who you are and why you are, I encourage you I exhort you to live like this. Peter makes that clear in verse 16. He says, live as people who are free because as Christians, you are in fact free, meaning your performance does not matter. I'm not saying that God doesn't hate sin, that God doesn't have a desire for us when it comes to how we live our lives. But I'm one, what I am saying and what Peter is saying here is that in the grand scheme of things as Christians, your performance does not matter. You are free. You are free. How can this be? Verse 24, 
He says, you are free because Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, Christ has dealt with your and my underwhelming performance once and for all. He took our failures with him to the cross and he breathed his last breath and he authoritatively said to telestai, meaning it is finished, I did it. Done. Meaning we don't have to worry about our performance any longer. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Steve Brown, he wrote a very controversial book entitled Three Free Sins, God's Not Mad at You. And in this book, Dr. Brown encourages Christians, kind of like a genie with his wishes, to go and use your three free sins. And I know some of you are really uncomfortable. I even just said that. <laughs> Dr. Brown doesn't actually desire that we as Christians sin, but he's simply trying to shine a spotlight on the legalism that so haunts us all. The belief that God's disposition towards us is directly related to how much or how little we sin. And that, my friends, is the anti-gospel. Because Christ has, past tense, dealt with our sin once and for all. Therefore, verse 24 again, we are now given the opportunity and the privilege to live for righteousness. And the rest of our text is a picture of what that looks like. Some of you may have grown up in a church tradition that utilized the King James Bible. Anyone? Amen? Just a few. Not many. There are certain phrases in the King James Bibles that just kind of stick, uh, that have kind of become notorious. And one of those is, is this in here, verse Peter 2, verse 9. The King James, it reads, but, but ye are a chosen ge generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, the translators were actually after something altogether different, but that phrase, peculiar people, kind of stuck. And I think it's fitting for what Peter is inviting us to. The lifestyle that Peter is calling us to here is rather peculiar. It's not intuitive. It's not commonplace. It's not even normal. It's weird. What does it look like? He says, in light of our identity and purpose as beloved sojourners sent here, for God's glory, and for those who don't know Christ, we are to live lives marked by holiness and submission. Holiness and submission. Look at verse 11. Peter says, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. I think if we're honest, this idea of living holy is extremely peculiar in this day and age. The world says, express yourself, indulge, live your own life. And then Peter in turn says, restrain yourself, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Again, the why is so key, verse 12, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Some of you may be aware of my story. I, I was able to see this played out in college. God grabbed a hold of my life in the end of college and all of my friends were non-Christians. I was involved in fraternity and after this radical transformation, I started leading Bible studies in this fraternity house. And most people thought it was super weird um, and just couldn't figure out what was going on. And I had a really good friend named Mark and I thought he was going to be there. I thought he would, I had enough relationship with him that he would just come because we were buddies, but he never came. And then one day he texts me, he says, I'm coming, Timothy, I'm coming to the Bible study. 
I have no idea what's going on. What, what happened? He said, well, Timothy, what happened is I was driving back to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, coming home, coming back from home, and I saw you on the side of the road, and you were helping that lady whose car was broke down. She said, I th- he said, I always thought it was a show, but when I saw you on the side of the road, it finally hit me that this thing was real. So I'm coming to the Bible study. Not really that peculiar of a thing that I was doing. I, I could tell you, my flesh didn't want to stop. I had better things to do. I, I, was, I was in a hurry. The Holy Spirit did something that motivated me to stop. I had no idea. Thousands of cars driving down this road. Just so happened that this guy happened to see this peculiar behavior in this one instance, and he came to the Bible study because he saw something different, something holy happening there and motivated to come and hear. In what areas of your life is God inviting you to greater holiness? Not because you have to, but because when you do, God is glorified and others notice and are drawn in. Not only are we invited to live peculiar lives through holiness, but also through submission. And before we dig in, I need to point out that this next section of Scripture, which we're not going to unpack thoroughly, is one of the most misinterpreted in all the Bible. And these misinterpretations of this text have led to immeasurable harm. People have used this Scripture to endorse the squelching of civil disobedience to support slavery, to justify abuse in the home. And the way that this has happened is that these scriptures are divorced from the context that we've just been talking about. This is not some sort of guidebook on Christian ethics. Peter is not demanding that Christians submit to oppressive governments or slaves submit to oppressive masters or wives submit to oppressive husbands. Remember, it's all in light of this paradigm, who I am, why I am, what am I supposed to be doing? Peter is inviting the sojourner to consider voluntarily submitting in hopes that your submission might give evidence of God's glory and lead people to Christ. This is not an argument for remaining in oppressive or abusive situations. As as human beings created in God's image, we deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and to fight for that dignity. And that is a noble and a good thing. At the same time, what the text is inviting us to is to be open to pain and suffering for the cause of Christ. To relinquish power in a most peculiar way so that others might encounter our Lord and Savior. And Peter says, I've given you a picture of what that looks like. Verse 21, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Makes me think of Jesus with his disciples sharing a meal days before he goes to the cross. And they arrive at the table and for some reason, someone goofed, there's no one there to wash their feet. And that feet washing is for the lowliest of lowly servants. I mean, someone who has no status whatsoever. And so they get there and, and, and there's no feet washing and disciples, they're not going to do it. You know, they've kind of a big deal now. They're, they're in Jesus' entourage. They've made it. And so they're not going to do something like that. And then Jesus, at the high point of his career, when he's starting to accumulate the most fame and popularity, he's, he's got the most power he's ever had, does something totally backward. He takes his cloak off. 
He wraps himself in a towel. He gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the disciples' feet. He pushes power away. He voluntarily submits, even though he doesn't have to. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does not demand that behavior of us. We are free indeed. But his invitation is to follow in his footsteps, to relinquish our power as a testimony of God's goodness and glory. As beloved sojourners who exist for God's glory and for those who do not know him, Peter invites us to live as peculiar people, people whose lives are marked by holiness and submission. And when we live like that, people will marvel. And Lord willing, they will come to know Christ as their Savior. I want to close with a story uh, from one of my favorite movies. It's a true story. The movie is Chariots of Fire. It's a lot better than Born Identity. It's a true story of a British Olympian named Eric Liddell. Uh, Liddell was a sprinter, famous uh, track star. His event was the 100 meter. Leading up to the 1924 Olympics, Liddell, he was dominant. Uh, he was a shoe-in for the gold medal. And yet, days before the Olympics, he discovers that the heat for the 100-meter race is going to be held on Sunday. And Liddell's a devout Christian, and all his life he's made a point to not compete on the Sabbath. And despite all kinds of pressure from the Prince of Wales, from the British Olympic Committee, Liddell pulls out of the event. And his, his withdrawal, it makes headlines all over the world. Nobody could fathom this peculiar behavior. And if you see the movie, it turns out that he's actually gifted a spot in the 400-meter race. And, and somehow, miraculously, he wins that event. But, but the point of the story is that, is that Peter is, li- I mean, Liddell is living into this invitation here. A peculiar life that's marked by holiness and submission. Had he not chosen to sit out of the race, nobody would have thought twice about it. And he would have likely won the gold medal and he would have been an Olympic champion, but there would have been no movie made, no story told. But because he chose to live differently, to live peculiarly, the world, verse 12, saw his good deeds and who knows how many lives were impacted by this peculiar behavior. Church, if you believe in him, then you are his beloved, and your belovedness is immovable and unshakable. That is and always will be who you are. And as his beloved, Christ has commissioned you out of a heart that bleeds for others to be a peculiar person, to follow in the footsteps of Christ by living a strange and holy and submissive life. And my hope and prayer is that if we do that, people like my friend Mark, will marvel and in turn be motivated to come hear and more about this God who has made us his own. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may you help us this morning, if this is all that we're here for, to be reminded of who we are as your beloved children. And that that is not based on our performance. That we did not earn that, we do not deserve it, but you have gifted us with that. And that you did that through the blood of Jesus on the cross. 
And Father, as we sit in that belovedness, may that help us to know more and more why we are here. And from that purpose, what it looks like to live out this peculiar life marked with holiness and submission, a life that causes others to come to know you. May it be so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.